What working with complexity does is help people build that by learning by doing and it's working at the pace and the space and where the organisation is at. It's not some idealised vision about what they should be, it's about where are you at and let's start there and let's work with the reality of what is as opposed to the idealised visionary of where you should be. So it requires a big shift because for umpty years many of the tools and methods have been based on a different set of assumptions and presumptions. I think the other reason why organisations should be excited and enthused and get engaged with these sorts of tools and methods is that it provides a level of security for people in a world of huge uncertainty. Because what complexity teaches us is that all you can actually do to be effective is understand your current state and make the next best choice. And then look at what's happening and then make the next best choice. Yes, it's about focusing on what's next. That doesn't mean that you don't have a sense of where you want to head, does it? It just means that you don't know exactly where you want to land. Welcome to the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Libertilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking, inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Viv Reid. Viv is currently the Director of Complexibility Proprietary Limited, the company she established to enable collaborative projects with other independent consultants working in the field of complexity both in Australia and internationally. She's also the Director of Kinevan Centre Australia, the Australian partner of the Kinevan Co. She's currently finalising the change focus of the not-for-profit foundation ARIO Limited to become a First Nations first organisation with shared governance arrangements with First Nations colleagues. Viv's focus is the application of complexity-based tools and methods specifically designed to make sense of complex issues as the basis for taking action. She has supported projects using these tools and methods, including the proprietary narrative software SenseMaker in Australia, New Zealand, Cambodia, Singapore, the Philippines, Canada, USA, and the UK for over 25 years. Viv is an experienced presenter, facilitator, and co-designer of public and in-house leadership and organization development programs, introducing the Kinevan Complexity Framework and Associated Complexity Principles and Practice in a wide variety of contexts. She has an international reputation for her skill in the explanation and practical application of the complexity concepts, enabling people to operate effectively in times of inherent uncertainty. Viv, so lovely to have you join us on the podcast today. I wonder if we could start with something about you that most people wouldn't know. Well, happy to, and most people wouldn't know because this is something that's only recently happening, which is as of the end of this month, I will become um, a, I guess you'd call it, a cattle baroness, which is a very funny thing. Yes, so a colleague of mine who has a global and international involvement in the world of environmental and uh, regeneration and so on and so forth, has negotiated the lease on a significant amount of land, which currently grows cows, up somewhere near Longreach and it would appear that my name is going to be the joint owner of said (laughs) lease. I don't know anything about growing cows, Suzanne. However, my our role is in in it is to do all of the social cultural activities associated with a significant trial around regenerative agriculture, working closely with community including a mob, the Indigenous community and showing what can be done differently in combining biodiversity, regenerative agriculture and working with the local Indigenous community. So did I think I would be a cattle baroness (laughs) in the afternoon tea of my career? Uh, No, I did not. But anyway, 
it will be interesting to see how it all unfolds. It will be, and it'll be really interesting to see how you apply what you've learned around navigating complexity over many years. Absolutely. It is going to be that. There is no doubt. So Viv, when did you first get involved in the application of complexity-based tools and methods? Well, I think it's fair to say that I was doing it before I knew it was called complexity. So back in the day, back in the 80s and 90s, my mentor was Professor Bill Ford. And we did a lot of work in workplace reform and he drew on the work of Fred Emery and Donald Sean and, and he himself was a thought leader. He called it multidimensional change as opposed to complexity. And in fact, I was going through a whole lot of things recently and I've got all of his original work where he would talk about entrepreneurial project management and a whole range of things. So we were doing it before the label of complexity, if you like, was put on it. So I was fortunate in having a mentor like Bill and the work that we did in workplace reforming some interesting places like the Opera House, like ICI Botany, like Lendlease and so on, used many of the sorts of principles that, that are now embedded in, in the tools and methods that come out of the Kennevin Stables. So when I met Dave, while he was still in IBM, there was sort of instant resonance. And I rang my father when I first saw the Kennevin framework and I said, Dad, I can now explain your daughter. You can die happy. I now can <laughs> explain me and why I seem to be a bit different to the rest of the family because you all live over there and I live in this other domain called complexity. What was powerful for me was the work that Dave had done in providing a framework to understand what we were doing and, 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 and to put a framework and some language around it. And I therefore, of course, bored everybody witless in the early stages by trying to have, get them as excited about it as I was. And of course they weren't, <laughs> which was one of the first big learnings, which is that I might be excited about frameworks and language and all sorts of things that doesn't mean the rest of the world is or was or will be. So Fifth, why do you think organisations need to be open to be using these tools? What's in it for them? Well, there's a couple of things I think which are most important. One is that fundamental to the tools and methods is building resilience and capability in the organisation because what is true about complexity is that context is critical. You can't just pick up and import things from somewhere else and have them work. Now, so much of what organisations do at the moment, unfortunately, is rely on external experts to say they've got the knowledge, they've seen it happen somewhere else. Here are 15 case studies of where it's happened somewhere else. Just pay us the big bucks and we'll bring it imported into your world and it will work. Now, that may be true for some parts of what happens in organisations, but there's an enormous part of their world where it won't, particularly to do with people and social systems. And the more complex and messy issues become, the less able you're simply able to import and you need to build the resilience and capacity of the people inside the organisation. And so what working with complexity does is help people build that by learning by doing. Mm -hmm. So it's a very active set of tools and methods. It's not sitting in training courses. It's not being off-site. It's actually learning by doing. And it's shifting the power and the responsibility away from external consultants into the organisation. And it's working at the pace and the space and where the organisation is at. It's not some idealised vision about what they should be. It's about where are you at and let's start there and let's work with the reality of what is as opposed to the idealised visionary of where you should be. So it requires a big shift because for umpty years many of the tools and methods have been based on a different set of assumptions and presumptions. I think the other reason why organisations should be excited and enthused and get engaged with these sorts of tools and methods is that it provides a level of security for people in a world of huge uncertainty. Because what complexity teaches us is that all you can actually do to be effective is understand your current state and make the next best choice. Mm -hmm. 
and then look at what's happening and then make the next best choice. So it's actually hugely empowering to know that what you're doing is going in a sense of direction as opposed to having to have total clarity, complete consensus mm. and all of those other sorts of things that can underpin some of the more traditional methods. It's okay to have conflict. In fact, it's embraced in complexity. It's okay to have differences of opinion. In fact, we want it. But what we learn is how to work with that as opposed to say it's not okay. So there's a whole range of things where in my experience over the last two years, people breathe a sigh of relief. Leaders breathe a sigh of relief where it's okay that people can have disagreements. It's learning to work with it as opposed to avoid it. Yes, yes. And when you were talking about it's about focusing on what's next, that doesn't mean that you don't have a sense of where you want to head, does it? It just means that you don't know exactly where you want to land. What it's about saying is that it's just as important to know where you don't want to be as where you do. Mm. And one of the things that the traditional vision and values processes rarely do is talk about what you don't want. Mm -hmm. It's all about an idealised vision of the future. Whereas in my experience, knowing for an organisation or an industry or even a, a family what you don't want because in complexity the options and the opportunities and the things that you can't see are the things that can trip you up. Mm. So when they come along, being able to say, no, we don't want that, or yes, maybe we could entertain that, knowing the boundaries of, of, what, of what is okay, not okay, is part of what's important. Yes. So knowing the sense of direction is, includes what's in, what's out, what are the boundaries, what's okay, what's not okay. What's different is it's not having a single statement of direction because what we also know is that if we get too targeted and too focused, people don't look at other opportunities that emerge and that's the thing that can trip them up. Yeah. So to be not too technical, it's about not being too fat but not being too skinny in your, in your focus and your <laughs> sense of direction. Highly, highly technical term. But having enough space for flex because the world can change, firstly, but more importantly, it's sufficiently messy that we can't know everything that we need to know. So how do we have enough space in there yeah. that allows people to flex, but we also not to have so much space that it's out of control, and that's a really difficult thing for some leaders. Mm. So what I often get from leaders when I'm working with complexity is but how can you convince me that I'm still going to be in control, I'm still going to know what's happening, I'm still <laughs> going to be able to manage it all, et cetera, et cetera, which in itself is an interesting fantasy because to think that they're actually in control now but we won't go there, you know, it's useful for them to think that they're in control but be that as it may. When you explicitly say working in complexity, you have to live with emergence, you don't always know everything, yes, but you can know enough and one of the knowing enough is knowing what you don't want. Yes. What's not okay, what you're going to real, rule out. And having robust conversations about that, in my experience, sometimes highlights values and people's assumptions about things in a way that having conversations about the ideal never does. Yeah. So that's where the whole idea of safe to fail comes in, isn't it? It's about being clear about yes. the things that you're okay with happening and not happening. Yes, and that's a really interesting thing, safe to fail, which is, which is one of the key concepts, which is about what's safe and it's okay if it doesn't work. In some of the environments in which we work, of course, using the word fail sends shivers up and down <laughs> the spine. For example, in the health system, we can't use the word fail. Mm. In the rail system in Queensland, where some years ago there was a huge kerfuffle called rail fail, when and lots of political and other, um, the last thing I can do working in an organisation like Queensland now say, oh, we're going to make it safe to fail, right? You yeah. know, there's the door. So in some environments, we've had to rename it safe to try. Yes. If they are really averse to innovation or doing anything differently or stepping outside, then we convert it. So that comes to a really important point around 
all of this, which is choosing the language that meets the context without compromising the principles that you're working with. Yes. And that becomes one of the tap dances that a facilitator or a practitioner working in complexity has to do and be aware of because you can't just blindly follow a recipe. Yes, yes. You need to understand it sufficiently and then be able to step back and say, well, if I'm working with a group of people, for example, Meals on Wheels, which is a project we're doing at the moment, if I'm designing a narrative a research project, which we are, for client feedback from Meals on Wheels, it's going to be different to the one that we're helping to design for young women in the youth justice system. The context is different, the language is different, and therefore we need to, so while the fundamental principles are the same, mm. we have to be attuned to context. Yes. Yeah? And I think that's yep. where complexity-based tools and methods come into their own. They are principles-based, but they have enough flexibility to meet the context that you're working with. Yeah. Now, that upsets a whole lot of people who want, where's the package, where's the thing in the toolbox, where's the recipe so I can just pick it up and roll it out and, and so on. So in that sense... Recipes are useful when you're dealing with traditionally easy-to-solve problems, etc., etc. Let's be clear, this is a both-and world. Mm. But when you're dealing with complex issues, then you need to shift your head because it's a very different kind of space to work in. And it's, is it really like setting some parameters, Viv, and then looking at how you work within those parameters quite flexibly in response to what you're learning as you go along? Well, yes, it is. And one of the things which I find, I was working with a group yesterday, actually, and they were having this fabulous conversation with all sorts of acronyms, right? And I'm facilitating a, a process around knowledge mapping and information mapping leading to lessons learning and a whole bunch of things. And I have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Yep. Absolutely none. And every now and then I... I had to say, look, I'm sorry, I've got no idea what you're talking about. I just need to check that everybody else understands each other because I don't need to. Yes. But you do. I will keep asking the dumb questions. I will keep making sure that there's clarity of understanding amongst you because you're going to make the choices about what you do next mm. with whatever it is you're talking about. Mm. But I don't need to understand. Now, that's, again, a huge shift in the relationship between facilitator and participant because at the end of the day my responsibility is to be the catalyst to get to shared understanding amongst a group of people who typically don't work together yes my responsibility is not about solving their problem and your responsibility is not about interpreting no everything that they're saying and imposing your interpretation absolutely not yeah now, that also creates a problem for some participants on occasion who are used to facilitators who only play that other role. Yes, yes. And as you would know, and so sometimes getting participants <laughs> to understand the shift in the power relationship is also part of the process because they're used to simply turning up mm. All care, no responsibility, it belongs to the facilitator, all of that. So there's a whole shift in the dynamics all because the nature of complexity is nobody can know everything and you have to dynamic, continuous feedback, a whole range of things yes. that go with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Viv, how would you compare working in complexity with pivoting in response to change? Okay, so the whole term of pivot became hugely fashionable because of COVID. And yeah. what I would say is the pivot is one potential response to a complex issue when you're in crisis, but it's not the only one, mm -hmm. right? Now, what, yeah. what we know is that there's a number of people who did all sorts of really interesting things under conditions of crisis. We know that crisis absolutely becomes the condition under which there is novel, most novelty emerges. Mm-hmm. 
And so there are examples of people who were manufacturing PPE who previously were making agricultural implements within four months, for example, in Australia and all sorts of things. So exacting, finding alternate uses for things that you already do, which would be the complexity definition of pivot, right? Yes. So is a legitimate part of the strategy portfolio that you have available inside complexity, but it's not the only one. Mm -hmm. Now, part of the dilemma I have with the thing about pivot is that everything became a pivot as if the only (laughs) strategy and the only thing available was to pivot. And, And I got this appallingly naughty image in my head of some poor bugger with his foot nailed to the floor rotating round and round in circles (laughs) as they were pivoting looking for where to stop now yes so because it became one of those things that everything had to be a pivot no what did have to happen is that there needed to be a radical rethink of a whole range of things based on the crisis now one of the examples that I think is really useful to think about in this sense was University of Southern Cross in Lismore. Mm -hmm. They're on high ground. And when the floods came, their whole traditional planning system and response system got thrown out and one of their senior people said at at a seminar workshop that we ran was the only choice they had for every request that was given was to say yes and then work out how to do it. Mm -hmm. Right? So they ended up hosting small businesses, the ambulance station, the fire station, three high schools, a whole bunch of things. And their decision frame simply was, in a crisis like this, as a community-based university connected on a hill, our only choice is to say yes and then work it out. Mm -hmm. Is that a pivot? I don't know that it's a pivot. I don't think it is. I think that's a university, a particular institution in a crisis saying we have to behave differently, but are they going to be like that forever? No. No. Are they, however, going to do some things differently as a result of that, like help the fire station and the ambulance station lobby to be rebuilt on higher ground? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So some people may pivot and do things differently forever, and some people may have to do something different in the short term in terms of crisis and so on and so forth. So it's a useful term, but I think it's got a bit overused and all-encompassing Yes, when there are a range of other options and strategies available in a crisis. Yeah. Yeah. So I know, Viv, a lot of organisations these days are very focused on building business intelligence capabilities. Yes. However, that's often very much focused on self-generated data that only provides part of the picture. Yes. So can you give some examples of where, for example, narrative-based research methods have deepened people's understanding of a particular complex challenge and enabled a more positive response that would have otherwise been missed? Sure. I'll give you a couple One was some years ago, a minister in the Singapore government announced that Singapore was going to become the intellectual property hub of Asia. Just one of those announcements that ministers are known to make. And the department responsible looked at each other and said, "Mm, okay, what do we think that might mean? And they looked at each other and said, we don't know. So my Singaporean colleague and I were asked to, to pull together And we did in the space of a week a whole bunch of different stakeholders around intellectual property in Singapore. Mm -hmm. And so we ran a series of narrative explorations without the software, lawyers, people who created intellectual property of one kind or another, other government agencies and departments and so on. We ran a series of narrative explorations around and we used the future-focused narrative question. It's three years' time. Singapore is the intellectual property hub of Asia. What experiences would you like to be sharing from your professional perspective? What experiences are you afraid you will be sharing? Mm -hmm. We collected all that, did the traditional narrative. So at the end of the week, we could go to the executive team responsible for implementing this policy to say, here are all of the 
concerns, wishes, aspirations, fears, etc., etc., you need to take into account in putting the policy initiative together to go back to the minister. So in an elapsed time of five days, we consulted with 450 people. We had extracted themes and processes, and there were a whole lot of things in there that that executive team said, there's a whole lot of stuff we would never have even thought about mm-hmm. in terms of. I think probably one of the others was we, it's one of the largest facilitation methods and processes that we've done, was in uh, the Northern Territory. We had 350 people in a basketball stadium. We had some SenseMaker data to work from, but it was around the future of education for the Northern Territory at the time. And so in that room were people from federal and state government departments and agencies, school teachers, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, parents, anybody who had an interest in education in the Northern Territory. Mm. We had some results from a sense maker. And in an elapsed time of two days, we ran through a series of narrative research methodologies, including using the sense maker, to get to 70 specifically recommended activities and actions across the, the various domains for consideration that had been done jointly and collaboratively with all of those people um, engaged and involved. Now, was it a traditional action plan? Uh, no. But what the executive had was a pretty clear idea about the breadth and so on. And some was immediate yes and some was, oh, I don't think so, and some was, hey, maybe we'll get back to you. Mm. So the third one I give you is that we've used SenseMakers, uh, the software, to go out really broadly to get to people who typically don't get consulted. And the, the classic one recently is actually in the US in a company called Palm Organization, Palm Health Foundation, who are philanthropists, fund local community health. And what we were able to do by skilling up local community activators as data collectors, for the first time ever, the immigrants, illegal immigrants from Haiti have had their narratives collected, are in the database, and their views and opinions are being fed through to the local authorities. So one of the things that the narrative research process enables you to do is have the process in and of itself become a community engagement and empowering strategy and process Mm. and we've done that on in a number of occasions and events and so all sorts of things are being surfaced which normally wouldn't people wouldn't kind of get access to Um, and we've used it in culture culture surveys and a whole range of other sorts of things yeah and I think even with that first example that you gave, yep. there's just such a great opportunity to surface the perverse unintended consequences Absolutely. of different things. Yes. And what really struck me was when you said the further decision makers, there was just things that they'd never even occurred to them yep. that could potentially happen. Absolutely. And I think probably the most interesting group out of that first example, the most interesting group for them that they hadn't thought about the implications about were a bunch of writers and artists that we brought in and their perspectives about intellectual property because mostly they've been thinking about, you know, tech and so on and they hadn't even started to think about IP from the artistic community. Mm. And by running a workshop with the artistic community and getting their views about what IP meant to them and how that got dealt with raised a whole range of things that otherwise the traditional IP debate had been about lawyers and tech. Yes. And so we opened that space up hugely Yes. for the artistic community that otherwise would never have got a voice. Yeah. yeah, and once again, it's like we were talking about before, you don't end up having an external consultant coming in and editing out no. different voices. It's actually about generating a broad range of rich insights yes. of all of the different yep. perspectives from across the system yep. and then allowing the decision makers to actually look at that and interpret them. Yep. 
themselves. Yep. Yep. And I think one of the other things, it stands out in my memory, we had, um, we were asked to run a process about implementing a new water strategy for Sydney. They'd done all of the research and they had all of the proposals and so on and so forth. And so we had in the room people from various government agencies. We had local government, lots of engineers and technical people and community people. And we gave them different coloured sticky notes. So, you know, the engineers were blue and the people were green and so on and so forth. As they talked about what were the issues and concerns around implementing this water strategy. And so one of the key concepts in complexity is descriptive self-awareness. You run the processes so the participants become aware themselves of similarities and differences in the room. And the one that stuck out for me most Mm -hmm. was that the engineers had put communication with the community in simple, clear, easy (laughs) to do, and the community had put it in complex, (laughs) challenging, and we didn't have to say anything other than I think you probably need a bit of conversation about why you see this particular element of this strategy so entirely differently. Yes, yes. I know I've done something before with a client where we've broken up the groups into compare and contrast. And by the end of one of the activities that we did when we got them to share, you could see that one part of the organisation was completely externally focused yes, and the other was completely internally focused. And you could see just the you know, you could understand what was probably causing a whole heap of frustrations yeah. for the CEO um, because yep. of the different ways in which the two groups were thinking. Yeah. The only other one I'd like to share is Meals on Wheels. We did, they were an early doctor. So we'd had our first sense maker project with them 10 years ago. We're about to repeat it to clients. And at the time, and this was about Meals on Wheels have a tagline more than just a meal. There was a whole range of things we were getting feedback about. So two things came out of it which were insights that otherwise would never have occurred. One was that price was not the issue to the client. Mm -hmm. It was quality in terms of the meal. And yet for the service deliverers, they had been so obsessed that it had to be about price. Obviously they were old and, and so they kept screwing down on quality to get the price down and were losing custom because that wasn't the issue. But the other interesting was that the government of the day at the time had decided that they would implement a new policy that said people had to leave their home at least once a week. It was good for them. Mm -hmm. There was research that said it was good for them and they had decided. And they were going to impose a penalty on any service who had clients that didn't leave their home at least once a week. Absolutely. In the day, this was going to happen. Now, we had, by chance talked to real people Mm. and had responses which said 25% of them said they didn't want to leave their home because they were frightened and concerned about etc. So I remember being in Canberra with the CEO from Meals on Wheels New South Wales to meet said people from Canberra and so on and so forth and the discussion went something along the lines of so in terms of this policy say I who did you talk to to get to this conclusion? Well, we didn't have to talk to anybody. It's what the research said. Me, well, do you think it would be a good idea to talk to people to test the research? Why should we do that? Well, because we have. And you're proposing a client-centred care model without talking to clients. And we are a client-centred service delivery organisation that do. Mm. And we talk to our clients who say they don't want to leave home and you're about to find them. Would you like to tell me again how that works when we put it out on a press release Mm. or have a meeting with the friend, parliamentary friends of Meals on Wheels? Would you like a further conversation about this now or later? Mm. They left the room and Les and I were left sitting looking at each other and half an hour later I said to Les, I don't think they're coming back, mate. (laughs) So we left and nothing more was heard at all about we are going to find people. So 
Les from Meals on Wheels, who's a passionate believer in this and we're going to do some more work for him, we've done a number of others, says the numbers are for the bureaucrats, the stories are for the politicians and the joy of narrative research is that you get both and he can play both. Mm. So for advocacy purposes, absolutely. For operational change, for making difference, it does both, and we're about to repeat the process for them. But it was very funny because there they were. They were very, oh, but the research tells us. Yeah, we think you might like to actually talk to a real person. <laughs> anyway, so Viv, before you were talking about the Kinevan framework, yes, and you've obviously known Dave Snowden, one of the pioneers of complexity thinking. Yep and the founder of the Kinevan Centre for a very long time. Yep. Now, the Kinevan Centre is now has an Australian base. Yes. So, And you're heading that up. Yes. Would you like to tell everyone a little bit more about some of the exciting projects that you're hoping you'll to get off the ground here in Australia? Sure. So Kinevan Centre is the, if you like, the social research arm of Kinevan Co., as opposed to a commercial consulting arm. And I've created it in the Australian context to do two things. One is to obviously be able to represent whatever comes out of the UK and promote any of the kind of programs and things that they're doing. But secondly, we've decided that we'd like the we, the Royal We, like to do some things that in context make sense for us. So Dave at this stage has made it a commitment to come out here once a year. That's cool. So I think we need to make some good use of the fact that he's coming and do some things that work for us in our context. So there's a couple of things. The first is that his next trip is in September this year. And we've had a number of people who are saying, really like SenseMaker, would really like to use it, but need help, need support, don't know how to market it, don't know how to sell it, blah, blah, blah. So first project is we are going to put together a distributed research option where we'll design a sense maker that people can use with their own client, get support from our team, but that will feed into a broader conversation. And having talked around, we think something that picks up the issue of decision-making, ethics and complexity is a focus for that. So just testing that out, but we're hoping that will be launched um, fairly soon. So there's that. There is on the Canadian Centre Australia website the yarns that we did last year with um, Indigenous thinkers and speakers, both from here, New Zealand and Papua New Guinea and Canada. At some point we were going to revisit those, but with the voice happening in Australia by agreement we're just putting that to one side at the moment but what certainly does still sit is a further perhaps enhancement of what was called the third space initiative Mm -hmm. which was how do we integrate indigenous knowledges into the complexity based tools and methods what I will say is that both Dr John Davis from Rightways Wanju and Deakin University have endorsed SenseMaker and the associated complexity-based methods as appropriate for use in First Nations communities as being appropriately decolonised, shall we say, which is fabulous. And so looking to do some projects with them as they may emerge. So that's the second major thing from Carnivan Centre Australia. And then the third is that there was a major project done by Carnivan Co. in Europe in aged care and so we are going to look to perhaps scope up something in the aged care space not just residential aged care but in the whole kind of community care sector again Mm -hmm. and see whether or not there's interest again in a distributed sense so there's a conference going to be in brisbane called something complexity in action take two (laughs) And we're going to also invite, you know, others who are interested to come along and make that as broadly based and interactive as possible. Look, the other thing that I can do is complexibility, as you know, is the kind of shared arm, has a community of practice. If people are interested in a particular topic, if they want us to track down an international 
person in the network or they want Dave or somebody, we're easily able and have done it for others and will do it to say, let's have a topic, let's pull some people together, let's have a chat in a much less kind of formal way, I guess, than others. So And promote according to what people are, are interested in. Mm. My current wish is that we do things that will promote the capacity building of practitioner network, mm-hmm. not just do things to say, look at us, aren't we fabulous? I'm not into Fig Jam. Yes. So whatever it is that we do is because it's going to provide real opportunities for people in the network to get access to either the software or tools or methods or be able to mm-hmm. play or try or whatever. So, the, sorry, there is one other a colleague who's recently left one of the big four, her vision, she wants to have one of the really big complex facilitation events. She wants to replicate the 350 in a basketball stadium type deal. Mm. And we've said, yeah, let's do it. Let's demonstrate for people what is possible. Yes. To have a, so that's on the agenda and that will be a Kinevin Centre Australia semi sponsored thing. Not sure on the venue and we might do it more than once. But that's the kind of thing that if people have got a good idea that they want help in manifesting one way, shape or form, the, if you like, the heuristics are, it needs to be sufficiently broad based that it's going to provide opportunities to lots of people. Yes. It needs to be cost recovery. Mm. I don't have a big, budget in fact I have none so it has to be cost recovery but we're happy to help make it happen and kind of spread the word as best we can yeah yeah Yeah. and there's just such a wealth of expertise there Viv I know I've learned so much just from conversations that we've had since since we've connected but yeah Viv what are some of the common mistakes that you see organizations and facilitators making when they're working in complexity biggest thing is is this belief that they need to guide direct solve the problem probably the person who best describes it in my view was Robert Poley who says you dance with complexity you don't solve the problem yes and so that image of you dancing and the music might change and you might have to change your footsteps but you learn to dance and you learn to love the dance and the fact today might be the rumba and tomorrow's the cha-cha and that's, but you are dancing with it. And you might solve bits of it, might break off, but, but at the end of the day, and so this belief that we can solve, I mean, you don't solve poverty. You don't solve the complex problem. And so I see facilitators and consultants caught up in this But what do I do when the client wants me to get to an outcome and I have to promise to solve it? Well, no, you actually, you don't. They're not that stupid. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What you need to to demonstrate is that you can get to a point that there is the next steps, that there is progress. There are things that are moving along. So that's the biggest thing that I see. The second thing is that believing that this requires, you know, a whole new program and then we'll have posters and we'll have the big change management deal and we'll trumpet it from... You just start doing stuff and you start doing stuff differently and it doesn't have to be the big grand plan. Yeah. One of the things that we did inside one of the hospital systems up here is is to try and bypass the, the nonsense of the traditional business case. Yes. Which was annual and appalling and so on and so forth. So we, we were doing a leadership program in there and using complexity. And we said to the participants, what can you do with what you've got to demonstrate that what you want to do is worth the money? Hmm. That's complexity. Hmm. So think about all of the little things, experiments, trials, things that you could do right now without needing any money, any resources. What can you do with what you've got that demonstrates that if you had more money, you could make a bigger impact? Yes. And that shifted a whole lot of constipated, uptight, angry people from... 
they won't let me there, I'll never get the money, right, to mobilising into doing a whole bunch of stuff. Yes. It's kind of shifting away and so many of the current business systems get in the way of thriving in complexity, your terms. Yes. They get in the way. Many years ago when Jim Varghese here in Brisbane was head of Main Roads and he came to me, he recruited me as what he called one of the critical friends. People would roll their eyes when I turned up at meetings, but that was Jim. And he said, I want to get the engineers to be more responsive to the community when they're out there building roads and infrastructure and so on. Mm. Now, the traditional approach would be put them on a roster to come in and have two days of customer service training and send them out and expect the world to be different. Mm. And Jim said to me, I know that won't work. Been there, done that, you know, they sleep through anyway. So the question then becomes, what is the system that tells engineers that they are good engineers in main roads? That was my question. Mm. How do they know that they are a good engineer? And it's the reporting system. How they report in. So we go to the reporting system and I said to Jim, where is anything to do with the, with the community in, on what they have to report? There isn't anything. Doesn't exist. And where is there anything in there about innovation or learning? Doesn't exist. So how about we change the reporting system? So the principle of complexity is you change the system to get the behaviour to emerge that you want. You don't start at behaviour. So we changed and there were just three more things they had to report on. How describe the innovations you have made as a result of community feedback. Hmm. Tell how you have passed on your learning to your colleagues and describe what you did differently as a result of what you have learnt from other colleagues. Hmm. They were the three questions. They got implemented. It changed. Two things happened. The first was... I had people from the bush, from the country areas saying, God, we've been doing this for years, mate, but we haven't been able to talk about it. Yeah. Innovation always happens at the edge, not at the centre of organisations, right? So it wasn't happening yes. in the metropolitan. Of course it was happening in the country. They lived there. They drank in the pubs. Yes. Well, they saw the people all the time. They talked to their mates, right? So all it did was formalise. So then the second stage was I could get all of the boys from the country, boys and girls from the country, to come in and run, this is how you do it stuff. I didn't have to bring in an expert about community consultation and community <laughs> engagement. Their expertise sat inside the organisation. Mm -hmm. So we found three or four pretty good blokes with the gift of the gab and we helped them put their stuff together, their stories, their narratives and their examples. They went on the road tour. Yeah. And ran the workshops. Yeah. That shifted the culture. Yeah. Yeah. That's complexity in work. Yeah. And look, we've, we've spoken a few times about the difference between being a complexity academic yes. and a complexity practitioner. Yes. So what advice would you give to someone who wants to stay as true as they can to the evidence base, but who really needs to engage people who aren't familiar with the theory behind the practice? The first thing that you do is get to understand the theory sufficiently that you can tell stories about it that are your stories. Mm -hmm. Those who can only repeat Dave's stories get themselves in trouble. Yeah. Right? So the way you embed your own learning, embody your own learning is, you know, some of Dave's stories are fabulous and I can repeat them and do, but I will acknowledge them as Dave's stories. Yes. You need to have your own narrative, your own stories to explain the key concepts so that they're part of you and they just become part of the language. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to be able to then take the half a dozen critical principles that are the things that you should not shift from and find the way of translating them. And by the examples and so on that, that you give into the context. So one of the things, any new organisation or new client that I'm working, one of the things that I first do is, is find the stories, which in my head I've got the Caliban framework, and I'm looking for the stories that would explain the different parts of the deal so that, so that that's informing me. 
knowing the things that are absolutely fundamental that you don't shift from is kind of what's important. But the most important thing, there are some words which are important because they cause people to have to think differently. Mm -hmm. Right? So I don't ever compromise on Kinevin. You know, the Kinevin framework is there and and I don't compromise on that. Dave's introduced a few new words recently. One of them is apparatic yes. in the domain of disorder, for example. Now I get into trouble because I call it apoplectic. <laughs> but the fact is people understand apoplectic mm. and apparatic, which means confusion and I have to ask, look at something differently in order to get away from it. It actually makes apparatic okay. Yes. When I say I'm an aporia because I'm apoplectic, it actually makes it kind of okay. So I don't say you can't use aporia, but when I'm in aporia, I'm apoplectic as well or something. I can do a bit of a dance and that's okay. So there are some words that are important not to compromise in there. The final thing is that there are in a number of environments, so the Kinevin framework is very important, but, but there are some key things about the domain that you can run the process without actually having to give the theory. Mm. And I've used it in Cambodia, I've used it in the Philippines, I've used it in, you know, all sorts of places, shop floor all over the place, where knowing the core characteristics of the different sorts of systems means you can have a conversation about that and I don't have to draw the framework. Yes. Likewise, when I have it, had a group of people, we did a, a project on diabetes and weight management and I have in the one room endocrinologists, highly specialised medicos, people with lived experience, diabetes educators, all in the one space. Am I going to introduce them to Kniven theory? Uh, no. Yeah. However, what I am going to do is get them to scan the data and have a conversation and put their proposed what they think should happen under the headings of these are the things that we think you know, need some ideas and innovation and so on, and these are the things, et cetera, et cetera. So you can, once you get sufficiently familiar, you can use the material appropriately to the audience. Mm-hmm. Yes. And stay true to the theory. And then if people want the theory, have it around and available for them. Yeah. My early days, I was so excited about it all. I, as I say, I, not only did I bore people witless, I assumed they needed to know what I knew. Yes. And the mistake I made early on was constantly thinking they needed to and and people would glaze over and turn off. Yep. Yes. And I learnt that they don't have to actually engage with the theory in order to do complexity. And anybody who brings up a child understands complexity inherently. (laughs) Well, I think if you've ever done any work with people at all. Yes. You tend to know what it is. Yes, and so part of it's about validating, finding the narratives that validate experience, current experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, Viv, in your own words, what does thriving and complexity mean to you? Not being overwhelmed, knowing that you can't get it wrong Mm -hmm. because you're only doing the next little thing and checking out whether it's okay or not, that if you've done that complexity is about collaboratively working together. So it's about networks. It's about making sure that you've got the kind of connections going that you need. It is going back to Robert Poley. It's about enjoying the dance. Mm -hmm. And it's about acknowledging that, you know, the kind of complexity that we work with, the notions and the concepts are drawn from nature. Yes. And so as opposed to computational complexity, but ours is drawn from from nature. And so if you look at the natural world and you see it survives, it's got some interesting ways and it doesn't need to know everything about everything in order to. I mean, there's a whole way in which you can feel. Now, there are also, I think, some unlearning Mm -hmm. that some of us have to do we need to have a different filter about some of the messages that get given around, you know, control and success and so on. But I think primarily thriving in complexity to me is about enjoying the dance. 
Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point to ask you. If you could look back and give advice to your 25-year-old self, what would you tell yourself? I'd tell myself two things. One which I instinctively knew but I became much more confident about, which is something I mentioned earlier, which is that it's much more important knowing what you don't want to do and what's not okay than it is having a clear picture about what is. Because if my 25-year-old self would have known that at this point in my life I was going to become a cattle baroness, come on, (laughs) you know, learning about how to grow cows and the biodiversity and all that, there is no way that would have been on anybody's agenda back then. Yeah. Okay. So, but it has been really important to be clear about the things that were not compatible, that were not resonant and not staying in things that were not okay in terms of... So that absolutely, I would say to my 25-year-old self, the second thing I would say, looking back, is that, and it goes to the thing I was just saying about thriving on complexity, one of the joys about getting older is that the angst of youth does go. <laughs> you do survive it. And that there is such joy in diversity. Yes. There is huge joy and in diversity and even still in, in one's 20s you're still looking for so I think that would, that would be the two things yeah some really good points to ponder on there Viv and if people remember only one thing from what we've spoken about today what do you think they must be sure to remember that learning how to be in a complex world draws on inherent human capability and that in part what people like you and I do is provide a platform and a framework of understanding that releases inherent capability Mm. and part of what traditional management theory and techniques have done has robbed people of the ability to operate in this space Mm. but it's a both and world So what we now need to do is to, we all have multiple identities Mm -hmm. and the identity we have at home, bringing up kids, dealing with multiple different things and so on and so forth, which to a large extent has not been embraced in a work environment, now needs to transition into being embraced in a work. It's why I've been self-employed as long as I have because I was never able to be that good and proper, you know, person in a box inside an organisation. So I think if there was anything I would say is don't be afraid of it. Mm. For organisations, the message would be understand that there are barriers to doing this well that exist inside the systems and policies and procedures, not the people. Yes. Yes. And if there is one thing that makes me very angry, and cranky and I have been known to have robust conversations around this it is you don't start with the people you start with the systems and the policies and the procedures and until they are appropriate to the context stop blaming the people yes yeah and probably the opposite of you I spent most of my life working within a highly bureaucratized yes. system and it is possible yes. to find ways to do it within those types of systems. Sometimes you need to make choices that are hard choices <laughs> or you need to do things that you know aren't really going to work because they're inherently complex and you're being forced to yep. take an approach that you know is not going to work. But it's about finding ways that you can make as much work as you possibly can. Look, of course, of course that's true. And, and again, one of the joys of complexity is because you can do so many, you can do little things, if, you, if you're prepared to accept that it's about what's within my sphere of influence, what little things can I do that make a difference here and there, there's an enormous thing amount that can be done differently without necessarily making it a sackable piece, absolutely. 
I think the other thing I would say around all of this is my concern at the moment would be, if I have one major concern, complexity has now become so fashionable that everybody who has ever promoted any service whatsoever to any organisation is renaming their products and services as being about complexity mm. and an awful lot isn't. Yeah. Yeah. It's just same old, same old, rebadged to look like they and so it's like so many things that they're knowing what really is going to provide value. Yes. Is probably one of the most challenging of and that's not to say the only person who knows how to do any of this is Dave mm. Snowden. That is not what I'm saying. And he absolutely acknowledges the work of Alicia Gerraro and Gary Klein and others that inform his work and I draw on others and so on. But there's a whole lot of people in the consulting and other world who I look at aghast who all of a sudden are promulgating exactly the same stuff but they'll just stick complexity on it because it's currently fashionable. Hmm. So my health warning would be <laughs> if you're going to work in this space, have a very judging eye around what's being offered and the extent to which there is. And this is where theory is important. Mm. It needs to be based in theory, but you don't need to teach the theory. Yes, yes. For those of us who, for whom theory is important, that's fine. But, but you need to know that it's deeply embedded in something that's real yeah, as opposed to not. And, you know, Viv, I sometimes find myself having a conversation or communicating with a client that I'm using a mix of, of complex and traditional techniques or, or saying ideally it would be good if we could do this because of these things. Yes. But then there will be times when, like, I know that's not going to work for you. Look. So this is the compromise we could make and you will still get this and this out of it. Look, absolutely. Yeah. And we've recently done an in-house program for a very large pharmaceutical company for 18 of their people who are primarily in the world of IT, all change stuff, etc. Now, there's no way in the world that they aren't going to have to do a mix mm. and that there are times where, frankly, the client and their internal, which makes it even harder than external, that there's no way in the world that they're going to be able to be pure. Yes. Right? But understanding clearly with intent the choices that you are making and why and also making it clear to the participant the shift in role that you are making. Mm. So if I move from doing complex facilitation where it's all care, no responsibility, hands off, you're kind of on your own, troops, to the other, then I will make that explicit. Mm. I will change what's happening in the room. I will call a break. I will say something like, we're now going to do this differently for this reason. It's not that one's right nor wrong, but but it needs to be clear and linked in context to what's going on yes so absolutely and let's also be clear that there's a couple of projects uh, one which got right to the very edge and then the ceo said you can't guarantee me that there will be enough positive stories so he stopped okay right? there is still enough nervousness around a process where you can't guarantee what the outcome what the be. outcome is going to look like that yeah. there are still enough people who, for whom it's much more important. So my final comment in a sense would be that people have said to me, why aren't the polling companies really excited about using something like SenseMaker? And I said, because you can't manipulate the results. You can't structure the questions for the answer that you want. Mm. You have to live with the reality of what people's lived experience is and they signify their own narratives. And you have to deal with the data as it is, yes, not as you want it to be or as you manipulate it. And so none of the polling people are remotely interested in this <laughs> approach. Yeah. So, Viv, I know we've had a very, probably a much longer than expected <laughs> conversation, but it's been so informative. But if our listeners would like to connect with you online, how can they do that? Okay, so at the moment, the Kinnevin Centre Australia website is being rebuilt. 
So the best option at the moment is through Complexibility. Yeah. And there will be a link from there back to Connection Centre Australia, which I hope will be back live with all of the events and so on. But their Complexibility also has a link through to the free community of practice that anybody's welcome to join and that will also where all of the announcements around the um, conference and so on will be as well. Well, Viv, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing such a wealth of valuable information. I hope people got a lot out of it. I know I certainly did. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you had something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time.